The title of the message this morning is Changing History. And I specifically chose that because that seems to be something that is impossible because it's something that's behind us. But we're going to explore this morning how, for us, believing in an almighty creator, that is possible. Last week, we talked about empty plates and full hearts, and the message was that fasting is a biblically appointed way of self-humbling. And this, this week, I received a few words of encouragement of members that have tried fasting for the first time, and I must say the reports was given with a smile, so it could not have been too painful. But I also read a testimony of a lawyer that uh, did fasting for the first time, and he reported back saying that the first day was terrible. He suffered the whole day. Every time he got up and walked out of his office to go and meet with somebody, he would be drawn into the first shop that he could smell food. And each time he sat down in a serious meeting, his tummy would rumble and make noises. And so by the end of the day, he sat down and he had a, say, a man-to-man talk with his stomach. And he said, stomach, today you have caused me immense uncomfortability. You have wrecked my concentration. I could think of nothing else but hunger. And it was just a terrible day. And I think the appropriate punishment I've decided is to fast another day. (laughs) And so I think this is a good example of that physical obedience and our stomach not being the master, but our stomach being a wonderful servant. And so last week we saw out of Acts 1 verse 8 that in order for us to fulfill our created purpose, the only power within which this is possible is the Holy Spirit. We cannot do it out of our own power. This can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. We also saw in Galatians 5.16 that there's no compromise between our flesh and the Holy Spirit. And Galatians, Paul says there, our flesh is in direct opposition to the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we yield to the Holy Spirit, we have to deal with our flesh. And one way to deal with our flesh is humbling. And one biblically appointed way of self-humbling is fasting. We talked about the elements of our flesh. We said the, the I feel, the I think, the I want. Those are the the elements that usually come up from our flesh because our emotions say, I feel a certain way. Our intelligence say, I think about certain truths. And our will says, I want to do specific things. So our will is the, the part that drags us towards sin. We are all controlled by these elements. We are all controlled by our flesh. None of us are exempt. These are the three elements that we have inherited from Adam. And this is the broken flesh that we have to deal with. The way to overcome this, as we've said, is to be aligned with the work of the Holy Spirit. And to be aligned with the work of the Holy Spirit, we have to humble ourselves. We have to deal with our flesh. We also confirmed that fasting is not commanded in Scripture. 
It is highly recommended, but it's not commanded. We read through Matthew 6, and we noticed the pattern in Jesus' teaching in verse 1, 5, and 16. We saw in verse 1, when Jesus was teaching about giving to the needy, Jesus said, do it in this way, not in that way. In verse 5, when Jesus taught about prayer, he said, do it in this way, not in that way. And in verse 16, when he comes to fasting, Jesus says, do it in this way, not in that way. We also noted that the words when are used and not if. So clearly saying when you give to the needy, not if you give to the needy. When you pray, not if you pray. And when you fast, not if you fast. In other words, when you humble yourself, not if you decide to humble yourself. We saw that the focus of fasting primarily is inwards. The very first purpose of fasting is to focus inward and to focus on your nature, your flesh. And these hunger pains should be a reminder for you of this flesh. And with each increasing hunger pain, the question should be, how can I be saved from this? Who can save me? And in this humbling, that points to Jesus. Jesus is the only one that saved us from this condition. So fasting is given as a reminder to us. A reminder not so that the Lord can see how humble we are, but a reminder so that we can see how prideful we are. Humbling is so that we can see what's in our hearts. The Lord already sees what's in secret. But are what you're seeing in your heart and what the Lord is seeing, are they the same things? Or is it two different pictures? So humbling then induces in us a type of brokenheartedness, a mourning about our condition. So we are brokenhearted that we, that we have this broken nature. Ecclesiastes 7.4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. So this brokenheartedness that we talked about last week consists of two things. Firstly, it's an admittance that we have no power in ourselves to avert suffering or to create meaning in our life. So we admit that that we are limited in our power here on earth. And the second one, the second part of that brokenheartedness is to accept accountability. Accountability for the stewardship and the responsibility that God has laid on us as human beings. So two parts to that brokenheartedness is to admit that we are powerless to avert suffering and to create meaning in our own lives our meaning is not within ourselves. Our meaning is aligned with the purpose of God, our Creator. And second is not to run away from our responsibility, but to be accountable for the, the responsibility that God has laid on us. Remember, we can run away as much as we want, but you cannot get away from the responsibility that God has laid on us as humans. 
Now, before we start looking at the text we read this morning from Esther, I want to mention three examples of where fasting or group fasting or corporate fasting has, has made a huge impact and changed history. And when I talk about corporate fasting, it's really just a modern word for saying when two or more people fast together for a common purpose. So we, we, we talk about individual fasting where your focus is completely inward to yourself. And corporate fasting is exactly the same. The first step is still that inward focus on yourself and on humbling. But then there's a second layer to which the believers agree on a common uh, theme or a common purpose or a common petition to bring before the Lord. The first example is from Jonah. Jonah is a reluctant prophet, really not happy to go to the city of Nineveh and to deliver God's, God's warning, but eventually he obeys. So he starts again with that physical obedience. He goes reluctantly and he walks through the city over three days and he declares a very simple warning. He says, 40 more days and the city will be overthrown. And we see in Jonah 3, 5, the response of the inhabitants of Nineveh. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them fasted. The king commanded the fast, and that the city should give up its evil ways. And the evil ways of, of the city was cruelty and violence. That was the depravity that the city had to repent from. And we see in verse 10 of Jonah 3 that when God saw what they did, and how they repented, he relented and did not bring the city to destruction. The destruction was delayed. So Jonah announced 40 days and God's judgment will fall on this city. But because of their humbling, and remember we can assume safely that this is unbelievers, mostly. Um, most commentators believe that the city had 600,000 inhabitants. And because of their response, they humbled themselves and they repented. Very, very important. They stopped the wrong thing that they were doing. And the 40 days was extended to just over 100 years. The judgment was not taken away, but it was delayed for that generation that humbled themselves. The second example is from Ezra in chapter 8 where Ezra and a group of Jews traveling back from Babylon on their way to Jerusalem camped out at the Ahava Canal. And they camped there for three days and they stopped there because they were just about to go through a very dangerous or treacherous territory. So they camped there and, and Ezra as the leader had, had two options. He could either ask the emperor who gave him permission to take this group of Jews back to Jerusalem to ask the emperor for protection or they could trust in God. Now Ezra 8 says that Israel was ashamed to ask for the emperor's protection because he declared God's goodness before the emperor and he declared that God will look after them on their journey. 
And so Ezra proclaimed a fast to humble themselves before God and ask God for a safe journey. And God answered their prayers. And he granted them the safe journey. They chose to humble themselves before God. And he granted them their petition. But note here that Ezra and the, the, the Jews knew exactly how to humble themselves. There wasn't a conference held before to say, here's step one to ten of how to humble yourselves. They knew. Humbling means fasting and prayer. They knew how to humble themselves. The third example I want to mention is from the New Testament. The New Testament church in Antioch. We read in Acts 13 how the church fasted and prayed, prayed before they sent out new apostles. Acts 13 verse 2 says, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. And note here that they were sent off not by the church, but by the Holy Spirit. And again in Acts 14, we read what Paul and Barnabas did after they preached. Acts 14 verse 23 says, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders from them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So after Paul and Barnabas had established a new ministry, they prayed and fasted before appointing teaching elders. So the early church did not appoint new teaching elders before fasting and praying, humbling themselves before the Lord. And in this New Testament context out of Acts, we can see two main events that happened in the spread of the gospel around the globe. The first was sending out of apostles, and the second one was once they have established the church, the ordaining of new elders. And none of these two things were done without first humbling through prayer and fasting. And so why? Why do we see this pattern? Is it just something they did? Or is there really something in the pattern? Is there truth in the pattern? Well, we just understood out of Acts 1 in the beginning that to be aligned with our purpose here on earth, we have to be aligned with the Holy Spirit. This work of sending out apostles, establishing God's church, sending out the truth, and ordaining elders can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit. So really all that Paul and Barnabas was doing is aligning themselves with the work of, of God, with the work of the Holy Spirit. And they did that by dealing with the flesh. They did that by corporately dealing with the flesh. They humbled themselves through fasting and prayer. So we now get to the text we read from Esther this morning. And we read from Esther chapter 4 
and we kind of enter the scene halfway through and we just need to spend a minute or two to explain a little bit of background so that you understand the, the drama that is unfolding here in the time of, of Esther and Mordecai. So several groups of Jews have already returned back to Jerusalem from exile in Babylon. We see these um, accounts through Nehemiah and Ezra. But in the time of Esther, we are introduced to King Xerxes. Now, his great, sorry, his grandfather, not great-grandfather, his grandfather was King Cyrus. And Cyrus is the one that issued the decree that the Jews can go back to Jerusalem. So we are now two generations later, a completely new king. Um, he's quite well known in modern history, King Xerxes. And we read that, that this is the time of, of the book of Esther. And so these group of Jews that remained back in Persia, Mordecai and Ezra, um, Esther was part of this group that was still in the Persian Empire. And they were based in the city of Susa. And in Esther 3, we are introduced to another new character, and his name is Haman. Now, Haman hated the Jews. But we need to understand where and why he hated them so much. And to explain this hatred, we need to go back a thousand years to the exodus out of Egypt, where Israel is exiting Egypt, and they are attacked by the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites is the descendants of Esau. Esau is the one that sold his birthright. So his descendants attack Israel, and because they didn't grant them safe passage, God cursed the Amalekites. And the, the name of Amalek was to be blotted out. And Israel was given instruction to destroy them. But they were never really able to do that. They were never completely obedient. We jump ahead 400 years and we read about King Saul conquering the Amalekites. But again, King Saul is disobedient. He captures King Agag and instead of destroying him, he keeps the king and some of his, you know, the, the prime animals and he doesn't slaughter them. Eventually, Samuel the prophet has to remedy the situation, but in that time, it's believed that some of those descendants escaped and the bloodline of Agag or the Amalekites continued to survive. So now we jump ahead 600 years and we meet Haman. Haman, in the time of Esther, under King Xerxes, is a descendant of King Agag. That's why Esther calls him an Agagite. And Haman knows his history. Haman knows what happened a thousand years ago and that they were cursed. Haman knows what happened with King Saul. And so he understands that this long-standing blood feud between his bloodline and the Jews. And this is the source of Haman's hate for the Jews. And this is why Haman is not happy with just killing one Jew. We will see that he's plotting for complete genocide. We also learn from Esther in the earlier chapters that Haman 
rose to a very high position in the kingdom. So, and he often had counsel with the king. And so he had quite a bit of influence. And during the first month of the year, Haman devised the plan. He went to the astrologers and the sorcerers and he asked them for the optimum time for him to execute his plan. So he was looking for divine, a divine sign of what he wanted to achieve, what was in his heart, the wickedness and the evil that was in his heart. They told him that on the 13th day of the 12th month is the best day to execute this plan. And so Haman, in, in, in counsel with the king, made his case. He said to the king, these people, these Jews, they are just obstinate people. They don't follow your rules. They don't accept you as king because they've got, a, they've got their own king. They don't accept your gods because they've got their own god. And so they should really be destroyed, not just in the Persian kingdom, but all the way back to Jerusalem. All the, the Jews should be destroyed. And more than that, if we do this, we can make a huge amount of money. This was Haman's case. So he was plotting genocide. Complete annihilation of each and every Jew. And he succeeds. King Xerxes, with his signet ring, signs an irrevocable decree that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews in the Persian Empire were to be killed. And I think this is a good argument to say that Haman came a lot closer than Hitler ever did. And we never understand quite the wickedness that was at work in the time of Esther. We need to understand that this is wickedness at work behind the scenes. This is much more than just one man's hate for a certain race. This is the work of Satan. That this, this is absolute wickedness to annihilate God's chosen people. And it's for the purpose of stopping redemption. Not just the redemption of the Jews out of captivity, out of exile, but also the birth of the Messiah that has been prophesied. So this is the backdrop. This is the environment that we are introduced into at the start of Esther 4, chapter 4. So the Jews have just received this decree, and let's imagine the first year of the month so that we can associate with it. In January of the year, we get a decree issued by the government. It's an irrevocable decree. In other words, it cannot be changed that a certain race group will be completely destroyed by the 13th of December. So that race group has got 11 months and a few days to just live in that anxiety of knowing that's what's going to happen. The empire is so big from India all the way up into Europe. Where can you flee? If you were a Jew, where were you going to go? If you go to the next city, they'll kill you there. If you go to the next country, they will kill you there. Because the Persian Empire was so big. So do you see how, the, how, how Satan patiently plotted this to get to a, to a position that he thought was checkmate? 
this is it. I've done it. I've achieved my purpose of destroying God's, God's purposes. But enters Mordecai and Esther. We arrive in chapter 4 and Mordecai hears this news. So horse riders were sent out into the empire and they all received this decree. Mordecai hears it and he immediately dresses himself in sackcloth and he, he mourns. And he informs Esther of the decree. And Mordecai says to Esther, you have to go to the king. Our best plan here is for you to go to the king and persuade him. The king didn't know Esther was a Jew. The best thing, what other plan can we think of? That's the best plan. You have to go see the king. And it seemed like a good plan, but it wasn't that simple. Because in Persia, nobody, not even the queen, could appear before the king without an invitation. And if you did that, you could be killed on the spot. But we also read in Esther 4, verse 11, that it, it's been 30 days since the king called for Esther. So imagine that, 30 days from seeing your wife. So from the wife's perspective, Esther, she would not have been feeling very confident about her abilities to influence Xerxes, her abilities to influence the king. But Mordecai replies back to her and encourages her and says in verse 13, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for a time such as this. Very well-known words have come to your place for such a time as this. And then Esther replied to Mordecai, say, okay, go together, get together all the Jews from Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. So this was a complete fast, no eating, no drinking. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out Esther's instruction. So Esther here asked them to, to fast for her, because their plan was it was her that had to influence the king. So even though their plan was a bit misguided, they still understood that it's a situation outside of their control. And we see in Esther's reply that she also realizes that this is a situation out of her control. And so she puts her life and her lot in God's hands. And she says, if I perish, I perish. God, this is now in your hands. I trust on you completely. And whatever your will is, let it be so. And once again, notice that the people knew exactly what to do to humble themselves. They fasted for three days. 
all the Jews in the capital city set aside those three days. They set aside themselves and they fasted. But remember the right type of fast from Matthew 6. This was a fast that was inwardly focused. So most of the people in Susa would not even have known that the Jews are busy humbling themselves before God Almighty. They would not have known what was happening. But the Jews were aware of this wicked plot. They saw the work of Satan, the work of evil in the background, and they humbled themselves before God, while the rest of the empire was oblivious. And this is a pattern of, in the same way that when you do a personal fast, you get to that point of mourning about your own situation. When this extends to a corporate fast, you corporately arrive at that point of realizing that what is ahead of us is so much bigger than ourselves. We cannot deal with it. We are powerless to do anything to the wickedness that are at work in our world. But our God is not powerless. Our God will stand by us. And so we see the result after their fasting in Esther 5 verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out the golden scepter in her hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. So this was a physical... Um, act of accepting the king's grace. And then the king asked, what is it, Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Isn't this amazing? This is the absolute critical turning point in this drama. And often we miss it because further down in, Est in Esther, it escalates to the climax where, where Haman is put on the pole. And Haman gets exactly what he plotted to do. But really it all starts here, after this three days of humbling, fasting before the Lord. Because Esther thought she was going to have to change the king's mind. And what's the reality when she enters the court? We find that the king's mind has already been changed. This is the same king that put his signet ring on that decree to annihilate all the Jews. And the king's heart is changed. Is this coincidence? No, we see that his heart has changed, that he's wowed by Esther's beauty again, in the same way that he was providentially wowed by her beauty when he chose her as queen. So Esther was put in the court for that reason. It was God's will working all along. And we are always blind to the many, many layers and the ways in which God brings about his purpose. So these people in Susa, the Jews, they removed the pridefulness from their heart. They humbled themselves and petitioned God for deliverance from their calamity. This deadly snare that the wicked one has set for them. 
even if some of them missed that and was just concerned about their own personal safety. It brought them to a point of humbling. And we see that God moves King Xerxes and he's wowed by the queen again. And before Esther could even open her mouth, before Esther could do anything, God moved and provided salvation. In the same way that he's always been saving before we do anything, he saved them out of Egypt. They did nothing. God continues to save without our work. But what is required is humbling and faith in him and his purposes. So we see that at this point the battle is won. But nearly none of the participants in this drama really notices it yet or realizes it. Haman doesn't. He still thinks he's in for it. He's actually pumped up in his pride because Esther invites him and the king to a banquet. So, so Haman is so pumped up in his pride that he completely misses what's ahead for him. He's completely blind. And so Esther is a, is a beautiful pattern for us. God is looking for men and women who realize the critical nature of the world we live in. Men and women that can see what is at work in the background, that can understand our situation. And with, together with their fellow believers, come before God, humble ourselves in prayer and fasting. God can and will still bring divine intervention today on behalf of his people. God still intervenes every single day. None of that has changed. And I don't know, even thinking about it myself, why we believe that. The God of the Old Testament, the New Testament, is the same. He has not changed. And praise be to God for that. Because we know that He will listen. We are facing the calling of a new teaching elder. We saw what the early church did when they were faced with the same thing. They humbled themselves and said, Lord, bring who you have chosen to bring, not who we think is the best pastor here. We are facing euthanasia laws, abortion, murder, and we feel helpless. We continue to fight and do what we can, but really... We are powerless against the plots of the evil one on the world scene. Marriage is being corrupted. The depravity is now so far that we, we don't know if we're male or female anymore. Those personal feelings are real feelings. But the reality is that we are depraved from those real basic truths. There's a wickedness at work in our world, in our city, here in Hobart. And who knows 
that we are placed here for such a time as this. And the Lord says, if you do not humble, deliverance will come from elsewhere. But it is on us to be obedient. It is on us to humble ourselves. God calls us to humble ourselves and to come before Him and to realize that as much as He's the only one that saves you personally, He's also the only one that saves us corporately in this world from the calamity that we face right ahead of us. So we move in our focus from an eternal focus in personal salvation to a temporary focus in this world. And our God is sovereign across both. And this is what Esther teaches us. My challenge is to humble myself before God and to trust Him and to watch what happens and to not doubt my faith in Him. Your challenge this morning is to put your faith in Him, humble yourself before Him and watch. Watch what He will do. Our challenge as a corporate body in Christ is to humble ourselves before God and to have faith and to watch how He will move and provide for us as He did for His people through all the ages. If we are in Him, who can prevail? In this crisis, the Jews knew how to humble themselves. They knew where to go to start with physical obedience, to get the spirit and the heart in the place that you are humble. Humbling doesn't come naturally to us. We are naturally bent to being prideful beings. That is what we've inherited from Adam. And so starting with fasting brings our hearts from that, humble, uh, sorry, that prideful position to a humble point that points us straight to our Savior, straight to Jesus. When people come together, when God's people come together, repent, humble, and pray, we see that the destruction is averted. Judgment is relented. Safety is given. In dangerous times, the proclamation of the word and the gospel is powerfully advanced when God's people do this. We also see that complete victory over evil. Evil is completely destroyed when God's people humble themselves before Him and pray for His mercy. I pray that we are reminded this morning of our sovereign God and that He is not powerless. Isaiah 21 reminds us, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. We are going to move to having communion this morning.
And in the same way that we humble ourselves and understand our human condition, communion is a physical sign that God has given us to remind us of the work that Christ has done. And so we see this pattern that as human beings we need these physical signs and reminders in the same way that communion reminds us of what Christ has done, in the same way fasting reminds us that we are prideful. And when you realize that, it points you to Christ, our Savior. And we will be reminded of that in communion in a little while's time. Please pray with me. Our Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord our God, we, we, humble, we humble ourselves before you and we on our knees, Lord, and we confess that we are sinful, we are prideful, and we so often point the finger somewhere else. We so often do not take accountability of what you've given us, what you have made us responsible for. Lord, we we sorry. We ask your forgiveness. We are sinners that deserve your judgment. And therefore, Lord, we are we are so thankful and blessed for the saving you provided through your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing mercy that you've extended us the golden scepter and you have given us the mercy. Lord, thank you so much for this mercy. And may you prepare our hearts now as we come to the communion table to be reminded of this work and how you obediently gave your life and your blood for our saving. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, musicians. Please stand. Um, we're going to sing Amazing Love as we prepare for communion.
the elders to join me up front and while they're coming up I want to remind you about our day of prayer and fasting on Wednesday and so we want to come together if you can at 8.30 here in the boardroom and we want to bring before our Lord our petition to call a, a new pastor but also use the time to mourn the loss of our, our old pastor Campbell um, but also bring these bigger events to him that we have been so active in, in Cornerstone. Um, you know, anti-discrimination, euthanasia, abortion, just all, you know, the wickedness that's at work in the background. So we call that you please fast with us 